one, two, three. Happy Mother's Day. See, that's what we celebrate today. And even though we celebrate Mother's Day today and we tell our children, you got to be nice to mommy today, it should be every day, right? I mean, Mother's Day is really every day. It's just, it's, this is like the Super Bowl day for moms. This is their game day. This is when they can kind of get away with anything. But really, think about it. Moms can and do get away with practically anything. So I don't know if we're just trying to highlight this day, not for the mothers, but mostly for us. It's for us to remember how special our mothers are. And even though we might give the moms a day off, we should do that every now and then, right? Right, moms? I mean, wouldn't it be great if everyone just listened? Wouldn't it be great if the children just did their chores without even asking? Wouldn't it be great if your husbands just listened to you and... I mean, it would be great, but sorry, it doesn't happen. But that's why we have Mother's Day. It's one day out of the year in the hopes that what could happen doesn't. The hopes of what we hopefully dream of could happen. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. But here's the dream that we all have. That today, we would begin to see what God sees. I love the quote from Abraham Lincoln. And he says about his mom... He says, I remember my mother's prayers, and they have always followed me. They have clung to me all my life. Because a mother's prayer really doesn't go away. It doesn't. And even though we may be separated from our mothers, or maybe we're still living with them, or, or they're uh, somewhere else, or maybe your mother has gone home to be with the Lord, everything our moms have taught us are still deep inside. And sometimes we live out that through our character, or the words we speak. And even the prayers of a mom, it doesn't go away even though they may not be by our side because they understand that there is a God who loves her children. See, we have great memories and we have not-so-great memories. And sometimes we hang on to the not-so-great memories and they, they come up every now and then. We have the bad memories of growing up or some things that have happened. But I, I want us to have a different perspective today. That's what we're talking about. It's time to see. We want to see from God's perspective, maybe through a mother's eyes, maybe through who mothers are, in what God sees for us. There's also an, another person, Hodding Carter Jr., who said, there are two lasting bequests we can give our children. One is roots, and the other is wings. Lionel Kaufman says, children are a great comfort in your old age. But they also help you get there faster, too. John Wilmot says, before I got married, I had six, theory, six theories about bringing up children. Now I have six children and no theories. <laughs> Sam Levinson says, insanity is hereditary. You get it from your children, which is true. You know, your moms, if, if, you're, if you're a child, well, we're all children, but if you're and uh, maybe a teenager around that age, and you think your mom is like, oh, man, she's always doing this and doing that, and she's always bothering me, and when my friends come over, she embarrasses me. You know your mom used to be the cool one? She used to be that person. And then she had children. And everything changed after that. Her whole life changed. And although you're a blessing, right now in that teenage years, that's where the biggest struggle will be. Because as a teenager, you're becoming more and more a woman, and your mom's hopes 
is that you don't do the same thing she used to do. So the lies you're telling, she knows because that's the ones she probably told. And it's, it's that, that in-between years of the teenage and then young adult years that you're going to have probably one of the greatest struggles with your mom because you're becoming a woman and she has gone through those years. That's why the Bible says, obey your parents for this is good. And you will live a long-lasting life. Now, I don't, I don't know if the Bible is saying that because they're saying so that your mom doesn't kill you. So obey your mom or obey your parents. But I think there's a promise there. And it doesn't matter at what age we are in life. What the Bible is saying is God has given us parents as a blessing. And even though there may be disagreements here and there, I want us to see today what God sees in every single person See, it's our moms that we mostly think about, especially when we're in trouble. Uh, when you're growing up and you get into a fight and they say, I'm going to call your mom or I'm going to call your parents, you're not really thinking about dad. Because dad, first thing he's going to say is, did you win? Did you win? But really, it's the mom. And isn't it true when you would get into a fight and if your, your shirt ripped, everyone stopped? Not because your shirt ripped, but because you're thinking of mom. It's like, she just bought me this shirt. I'm dead meat now. Like, you got to face mom. Mom is that person who keeps things in order, but if need be, will make everything out of order. Mom has that ability. Did you know that God has given moms a special ability to kind of do it all? That's what moms are able to do. Now, dads, we try. And thank God for dads who try. But the children just, for some reason, will gravitate more towards mom, even when there's compassion. Because if a child falls down and a dad sees them or a mom sees them, the dad will say, no more broken bones, no more blood. The mom will say, come here, give me a hug, and they'll kiss the boo-boo. So kids will normally gravitate to their moms because of that. Well, as we continue to grow up, life changes, society changes, the world changes. And somewhere along the line, our, our vision and what we see and our perspective gets skewed by the ways of the world. And no longer do we see moms how we used to. No longer do we see women how they used to. And then women, you no longer see yourself how you used to. You no longer see yourself as beautiful. You now compare and now you look at what the pictures say in the media and, and the movies and the models. And now you say, I don't match up to that. And so things change along the way, but it's time to see what God sees. Let's read what our scriptures say. You can take out your bulletin and in there are some notes that will help you to follow along. Galatians 4.4 tells us that God sees everything. In the fullness of time. And we're going to read it together. Are you ready? Let's read it together. Go. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Did you know that Jesus had a mom? Her name was Mary. So Jesus had a mother and she instilled in him certain qualities that pointed Jesus to his heavenly father. That Jesus... When he was born, his mother took very good care of him. Now, the Bible doesn't say what happened to Joseph, uh, to Joseph uh, Jesus' earthly father. It doesn't say that Joseph, this was what happened to Joseph or Jesus' stepfather because 
Really, when Jesus was born, he was born of the Holy Spirit unto Mary. But Mary raised him up. And because of the, the things of God that she instilled in young Jesus, he could continue to follow the calling on his life and began to understand who he really was. See, moms have a special ability to help their children fly. Sometimes we're in a situation that we can't help and, and maybe we're in a bad situation and bad circumstance and we don't know how to get out of it and, and we don't know if God approves of what we're doing or not. But really what the Bible tells us is that God sees everything in the fullness of time from beginning to end and he came to help us. Let's read Romans 5, 6 from our notes and what the Bible tells us. Ready? Go. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, you and I were not behaving so well. That's when Jesus said, I'm going to pay the price for their sin because they don't have the ability to behave how they want to. They don't have the ability to be good. And so they cannot, in my father's eyes, be righteous unless someone pays the price for their sin. And so that's what Jesus came to do. He came to pay the price for our sin so that what God sees in us now that we received Christ is righteousness and no longer sin. That's what God sees for every believer. Did you know that God could see the right time for you to become a mother? Regardless of the circumstances, God knew you would be a mom. And he brought Jesus at the right time. God has given us mothers to learn from. And God sees greatness in every single person. And even though we may agree that God sees greatness in every single person, not every person believes that. Not everyone believes that they have greatness inside of them because of God. It's just hard to see because of maybe a past thing that has happened. But it's time to see what God sees in you. He wants us to learn three important things. And here's the first thing. If you're writing some notes, the first thing is that God made you extraordinary. He made you extraordinary. He created you extraordinary. Did you know that styles have changed throughout the years? Even the way we see each other, that changes throughout the years. In fact, go back to your photo albums when you were growing up. You will see the styles have changed. The styles from the 50s and 60s and, oh my goodness, the shorts in the 70s. And then the 80s and 90s. I mean, you can just see the styles change. And what happens is as a society, as a people, we begin to look on the exterior of who people are. And then we say that this person is beautiful or not beautiful. That person is presentable or unpresentable. And so we judge the exterior. But God says, I created you to be extraordinary, not because of your exterior, but because of my spirit that dwells in you. So if we were to look at the past 3,000 years, for the women, you might think today that you no longer fit what, what beauty is. You no longer fit the ideal body. You no longer fit the ideal facial features and, and the hair and all of that. But I want to give you a history, a timeline of when women were beautiful in their time. And we'll start in ancient Egypt. 1292 through 1069 B.C. 
This is what they saw as a beautiful woman. Slender, narrow shoulders, high waist, symmetrical face. That was what they said was the ideal woman. Ancient Greece, from 500 to 300 B.C. Plump. That's what it, is. That's what it says, plump. Full-bodied. Full-bodied. Like full-bodied. Light-skinned. Women were considered disfigured men, disfigured versions of men. And they were beautiful in that time. The Han Dynasty, from 206 B.C. to 220 A.D., slim waist, small feet, large eyes, pale skin, was considered beautiful. The Italian Renaissance, from 1400 to 1700, everything round. That's all I'm going to say. Let's go on to the Victorian England stage, 1837 to 1901. Women wore corsets to achieve the ideal body shape, full-figured, cinched waist, and plump. The Roaring Twenties, downplayed waist, short bob hairstyle, boyish figure. Golden Age of Hollywood, 1930 to 1950, curvy, hourglass figure, slim waist. The Swinging Sixties, willowy, Thin, long, slim legs, adolescent physique. The supermodel era, 1980s, athletic but curvy, tall, toned arms. The 90s, wayfish, extremely thin, translucent skin. Whatever that means, like you're invisible. <laughs> now the postmodern beauty of 2000 and plus, 2000 till today, flat stomach, a healthy skinny, Thin thighs and bigger on the booty. Okay, so that's pretty much what they say is the beauty of women throughout 3,000 years. 3,000 years. So, in other words, you may look at yourself today and say, I'm not beautiful in the eyes of the world. And you might say, I don't match up to this. I don't look great anymore. But really what you're doing is you're comparing to beauty in the eyes of of what people say today that hold that up as a standard. But that's not what God says. See, throughout history, basically, if you think about it, throughout history, God says, you're extraordinary. Yeah, but I'm no longer like this. I don't have the thin waist. I don't have this. I'm like this. I'm, I'm, I'm all this. And God says, yeah, you're just comparing it to today's view of beauty. But if you look from my perspective, Mankind cannot handle the beauty of women throughout time, so they had to do one at a time through time. But God says, you're extraordinary in my sight. I read this blog because of Mother's Day, and, and it's called the Disney Princess Complex. And just, just remove your view of Walt Disney, and if there's controversy there, uh, and, and it's not, I'm not trying to promote uh, Disney movies or, or just the idea behind it. But I want us to take something from what this young woman is writing in this blog. And it's called the Disney Princess Complex. And she writes this. I was a happy, chubby little girl. I dined on delicacies of Twinkies, Hostess cupcakes, and zebra cakes. When I would wake up, I'd enjoy my breakfast of a cream-filled donut followed by frosted flakes. Eating with my color-changing Lion King spoon. 
After my filling of sugary breakfast, I would wrap myself in the most beautiful blanket I could find, tied around me Little Mermaid style, and I would be a princess. I would spin around under the ceiling fan trying to waltz as fast as it could spin me until my legs felt like jello. And it would usually end with me crawling up the stairs because my legs didn't work anymore. And that ended me with reenacting Mufasa's fall. And as my mother stood at the top of the stairs, I would yell, Mother, help me. I was the coolest kid ever. But in all that time of longing to be just like those gorgeous Disney princesses, never did I once think, that I should really stop eating those Twinkies and and get a three-inch waist. Never, not once. Even as an adult, I longed to dance and twirl like Aurora in the woods, but I couldn't care less about having a waist that will snap in two. I see so many articles these days telling us to stand up to Disney and push for a more realistic princess. People are wanting to see Cinderella, Snow White, Aurora, and Ariel drawn as a size 14, 5-foot average girl. I'm no size two, but I have some arguments with this idea. First of all, Cinderella was a starving slave forced to work without food for her stepmother and sisters. Ariel was a ridiculously good swimmer who had use of her enti- had to use her entire body to get anywhere in the sea. So she was very fit, very athletic. Aurora lived in a cottage with three fairies who had no source of income other than their magic that they weren't able to use. Food was most likely scarce. Snow White had to share a kitchen with seven men who worked in a mine. Do you really think there was food left in the kitchen for her? No wonder she ate the apple. (laughs) The fact is, making these specific storylines about a plus-size girl just wouldn't make sense. If Cinderella had enjoyed Twinkies as much as I did, her stepmother would have been incredibly curious about that growing waistline of hers. I'm not saying that a three-inch waist is realistic. Please don't take that away from this. These movies are cartoons, though. We have to make sure our daughters understand the difference between realistic expectations for our bodies and the form of art. Working in the bridal industry, I have seen girls of all different sizes. I can honestly say that, that I have seen fit and beautiful women from size 2 to size 20. Bone structures are different. Genetic tendencies are different. From a four foot to a six foot two woman, the heights of these women varied incredibly. Every single one of them, however, could have been a model. Every single one of them is already a princess. We worry so much that our daughters wouldn't be able to understand that they too could be a princess. We worry that Disney is creating a norm for beauty, a norm for what body size constitutes beauty. What we don't see is that these girls care more about the beautiful dresses, the dancing, the kindness that these princesses show more than the size of their waists and hips. 1 Corinthians says, when I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I grew up, I put the ways of childhood behind me. We usually think of this in the context of love, but it applies in so many other instances. When we grow up, we lose that innocence that we were born with. We start fighting battles that we create ourselves. A battle, battle against Disney seems so unimportant in the big scheme of things. Our 
our children concerned about Cinderella's small waist? Or are they too entranced with her ballroom dancing skills to care? Are all the daughters in the world worried about having a long, slim torso like Ariel? Or do they want to learn to swim because of her? What we should be concerned about is if they understand who their true king is. They have a father to come home to who adorns their heads with crowns and thinks they are beautiful in all their forms. He traded his crown of thorns so we might wear crowns of love, beauty, and innocence. And he is waiting for us to dance into his arms in all our radiant beauty. So I encourage you, if you have a daughter, to go find two of your best blankets, tie them around yourselves, and be the princesses you are. I guarantee that neither of you will be worried about what size your jeans are. You see, beauty by the standards of the world is so minute. It narrows it down to just one thing. And God says, you're extraordinary. I created every single woman different and beautiful. Every single man different and important and valuable. Everyone is extraordinary. God created us that way. The book of Psalms says it like this. Psalm 139, verse 14 and 15. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. So if your body shape is an apple, pear, pumpkin, watermelon, banana, you are all extraordinary fruit in the eyes of God. He made your extraordinary complex. That word that he uses, that when he formed us, marvelous in his sight, it really means to be wonderful, to be surprisingly extraordinary. That's what the Bible says. Now, men, it, it doesn't... They don't do as much studies on men because our studies are very short. So basically, this is our study. Studies have shown that American men face media pressure to have the perfect muscular body. That's it. That's our study. So we need major help because as we grow up, we lose the abs and we gain the ab. At least we still have one. And if worse come to worse and you don't like the way your body looks, just look at your face. Just exclude everything else. And if your face is getting a lot of wrinkles, just check out your eyeball. Because, oh, the eyeball is awesome. It's extraordinarily made. Here's the second thing we got to understand that God wants us to see. That God has vision for our life. He, has, he, he sees everything from beginning to end. And he has a vision for our life. God wants you and I to see what he saw when he first created us. When he first thought us up, he wants us to see what he sees. Before you made any mistakes, before you lived through that horrible season that you had to go through and, and on, on all the difficult times, God wants you to see what he saw before we went through all of that. Because he has vision for our life. Psalm 139, 16, it actually continues and says, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day has pa had passed. See, your, your life is that precious to God and meaningful to God that he journaled about your life and mine. 
he saw what our life was to be, and he said, this is a great life, and he journaled about it. Just because we make some mistakes along the way doesn't change that God has vision for our life. It's still there. He journals about the good, the bad, even the ugly times. He journals about it because God sees us at our very worst. But he says, I've created you in an extraordinary way and have vision for your life. So the question is, what is the vision for your life? Where, where do you see your life heading? What, what does it look like? You might think of career. You might think of family. You might think of, of college. And you might think of those things, but maybe we're thinking too small. Maybe God says, I want you to see from my perspective that it's, it's not just in the tasks at hand. I want you to see that I have vision for your life, for who you are in me, that you're that valuable to me. For some of us, maybe planting, planning to get married was a, a vision for our life. And, and we're, we're thinking, oh, it's going to be peaches and cream. But as you get married and, and you go through rough times, it's maybe the peaches and cream, that season is gone. And maybe it's, you know, like guavas and cottage cheese now. It's just different. <laughs> and, and maybe your, your view of life changed because the picture and expectation you had on life didn't turn out to what it was supposed to be. And God says, you still have hope because I have vision for your life. I'm the one that's going to help you. See, I think as parents, we want our children well-behaved. We want everyone well-behaved. We want everyone just to, 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 to not make mistakes and, and not do anything that's going to be bad. And that's okay to have, but realistically, it's, it's, we can't live a perfect life. I mean, even when we have children, the first child, I mean, we babied them. We really took good care of them. The second one, it was like a little less. You know, you, you drop something on the ground. First baby, you boil everything. Second baby, it's like, ah, it's, I washed it. It's okay. You have the first child, you can blame them for everything because they're the only ones who broke it. Unless the husband sets them up. But normally it's them. But if you have two children, now you have to play detective and who did what. And they're blaming each other. After three, four children, you're like, I don't even care who did it. You're all getting lickings. You are all grounded. I ain't taking out time for this. And we think even as parents, it's a, it's a shift because we thought life was going to be like this and everything changed. But if we come back to what God sees, maybe all of this is included in it. Maybe this is just a part of the story that God is penning. Maybe this is part of the vision God has. Maybe we needed to go through certain things to get to the place that God sees us to be. We just got to trust that God has vision for our life because he sees everything from beginning to end. And he wants us to see that he still has vision for you and your family. It's recorded in his book. Maybe your children are going off the deep end. Maybe they strayed from God. Maybe... Maybe they're struggling. Maybe they're successful. Still doesn't change that God has vision for your life. Because here's the last thing. This is what God wants us to see. That God sees you as precious. He sees you as precious. Now, I know for the men, that word precious may not kind of grab you. So just write in there that God sees you as the man. He sees you as the man. Now, you the man. You the guy. Yeah, I see you. You're a good man. And you can even write there, God sees me as the man. Parentheses, manly voice, the man. That's how God sees you. He sees you as strong. He sees you as a, as a, as a 
person who can provide, a, a person who can still encourage, a person who, of strength, the superhero of the family. And it's not about a physical strength. Really, it's the strength and resilience of the spirit that dwells deep inside of you as a man. That God says, you are precious in my sight, male or female, parent or child, you are God's most prized possession, his most prized creation. Psalm 139 continues, and it says, how precious are your thoughts about me, O God. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I wake up, you are still with me. You know that you never leave something that is precious. That's why God is still with us when we wake up. He doesn't leave that which is precious. You're that valuable to God. To be precious means to esteem or to be prized or to be valuable or costly. The Bible tells us that Jesus paid a high price for us. He bought us with his life. You're that valuable to God. It is said that your children are a reflection of you, yet the Bible says... That we are made in the image of God. People say, oh, well, you know, because of your parenting, now your children are like this. Well, we may have some to do with their character qualities or, or certain habits that they may have. But as our children grow up, they begin to make choices of their own. And then they become, they become people that, that draw closer to God in developing their own relationship with Him. There are people who begin their faith with the Lord, no longer under their parents' so-called faith and what their parents believe, but our children find God. And maybe their journey is not like the journey you wanted them to have, yet somewhere along the line, God says, because they're precious to me, they'll be okay. Yeah, but my, my child has strayed. They don't follow you anymore, but do they know me? Yeah, they know you. Then my spirit dwells in them. They'll be okay. That's why Jesus is called the good shepherd. We are sheep and we go astray. And so Jesus, as the good shepherd, will always take care of his sheep because he has vision for our life. You're seen as precious by God. That's why Jesus died. That's why he died for your sins and my sins because you're precious. He doesn't want to spend eternity without you. And so it's his spirit that brings our spirit to life. As the Bible says in John 3, verses 5 and 6, Jesus replies to the people, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. It's God's Spirit that brings us to life. And He does that because He has vision for our life, because you're extraordinary and precious in His sight. We, we, we may not know how you moms do it all. We may not know. We may not know what you go through or for those that have lost their mom or, or maybe you lost a child. We may not ever understand that. But God does. Maybe God wants us to have a new perspective. Maybe he uses moms to do that. And maybe if our perspective needs to be changed a little bit or maybe if we need help, Maybe God wants us to see what he sees. Don't go changing. 
try and please me and never let me down before don't
That's what God sees. He loves you just the way you are. And the beautiful thing about God, the, the wonderful thing about God is that when he, when he captures your heart, and when you understand how valuable you are to him, then you become more and more the person he made you to be. He loves you just the way you are because he made you extraordinary. You're precious in his sight. He has vision for your life. It's time to see what God sees. You pray with me. Lord, we're so grateful that you have not only given us moms, but you have created us extraordinary. You have given us vision for our life. We're precious to you. I pray for all of our moms that today they would always, they would hold today dear to their hearts, not not only because it's Mother's Day, but because they're reminded of, of all the great things that they've accomplished and the goodness that comes from them as moms that is instilled in the hearts of their children and even beyond. I pray for all of us as a family that we would understand how good you are that instead of us looking at the circumstances that we face or the circumstances that are in front of us, it's time for us to see what you see. So thank you for your perspective. There may be some of you this morning and maybe you have never connected to God. You've never said yes to Him. You've never given Him your heart. You've never accepted, accepted Him as your Lord and Savior. Maybe today is the reminder that there's something greater in life that you've been searching for and you've never found it until today and it's the Spirit of God. If you want to receive Jesus today, I'm going to say a prayer, but if that's you and you're saying, I want to give Jesus my heart and I want to accept Him into my life, could you just lift a hand and I'll pray with you, I'll lead you in a prayer and you're just saying yes to Jesus. It's an eternal life decision. God sees your hand. God bless you. Right here, God sees you. Right here, back there, God sees you. Yeah, God calls all of us right there. God sees you. God sees you. Back there, God sees your hand. Yep, you're saying yes to Jesus for eternal life. That God has a place for you and I in heaven. You can put your hands down. How many of us, even as believers, sometimes we just need our perspectives to be God's perspective. And so maybe you're a believer and, and maybe today our, our response to God is, Lord, can you, can you just give me your perspective in everything that I'm going through? You may be going through a great season, but Lord, I want your perspective. And if that's you, would you respond and say, Lord, by the lifting of my hands, I'm saying, I want your perspective. Go ahead. You can just lift a hand and you're just responding to God saying, I want your perspective today, Lord. And yeah, that's all of us, Lord. You can put your hands down. Here's our prayer. And we're going to say this together, especially for those who are saying this for the very first time and giving your hearts to Jesus. Here's our prayer. Heavenly Father. Thank you for Jesus. Forgive me of my sins and wash me clean. Make me brand new. I believe in you, that you died for me, was buried in the grave, and rose again to give me eternal life. In Jesus' name I pray. 
And we all said, Amen. Amen.